0: Today's conversation is an invitation for you to take a little bit of time to slow down and think about a topic we normally avoid talking about. My guest today is Dr. Bruce Grayson, who is the professor of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia. Bruce's topic for today is his upcoming book, Aster a doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond. We're going to be talking about that whole idea of what happens to us when we die. Bruce's interest in near-death experiences began just a few months after graduating from medical school when he was treating an unconscious patient in the emergency room who stunned him the next morning with an account very accurate account of leaving her body and observing the events around her including observing him talking to her roommate what he wore at the time and the details of the conversation. That event challenged his beliefs about the mind and the brain and ultimately led him on a journey to study near-death experiences scientifically for more than 50 years. This then led him to hundreds of studies and publications and medical journals. He co-founded the International Association for Near-Death Studies, an organization to support and promote research into these kinds of experiences. Through his research, he has discovered common and universal themes in the near-death experiences that go beyond neuropsychological or cultural interpretations. He, in doing so, created a list of patterns of consistent after-effects on individuals' attitudes and beliefs and values and personalities. He basically described to us in a very consistent way what a near-death experience looks like and what it does to us after we experience it. This is a topic that's very dear to my heart. Slow down and listen with an open heart. Although some of the things we're going to discuss are things you may not believe are necessarily true. Dr. Bruce Grayson. So I've been very looking forward to our conversation. I I don't know if you know my story, but I had a near-death experience myself, and I lost my wonderful son when he was 21. Oh, I'm so sorry. uh, Yeah, With some indications that he probably had a near-death experience before he left, at least... Accounts of his friends talking about seeing him at the time where he left our world, sort of. So it's quite an intriguing topic for me, and the whole idea of death and what death is about is something that I think is uh is very intriguing for me and for probably for many many of my listeners. So after your book is coming in a month's time, right? Uh, March. Uh, March seconds. second. March. Oh, so less than a month. That's all. Yes. Uh, and, and is it available for pre-order so people can? Uh, Yes, yes. That's fantastic. So let's tell them about it. What's after? I mean, this is your first time as an author, or is it not? That's right. Yeah. So you spent your entire life in the medical profession. Yes, yes. And now you're writing a book, and not really about medicine, not really about the medical field, is it?
1: Well, not really, not entirely. I do dip into that, to talk about the medical hypotheses that have been proposed to explain near-death experiences. But the book is primarily about the experience itself and how it changes people, and how I came to find them interesting, and how it changed me. I understand that
0: you started being interested in NDEs literally just as you came out of graduation, right? So uh, that's right. A, yeah, can you share the story with us?
1: Uh, sure, I can. I was raised in the, in a materialistic scientific household. My father was a chemist, and we just never talked about anything non-physical. We weren't anti-spiritual. It just, it just never came up, never occurred to us. Was there anything other than the physical realm? So I went through college and medical school with that mindset that the physical world is all you get and that when you die, that's the end of everything. And then after medical school, I started my internship in psychiatry. And within a couple of months, I was asked to evaluate a patient who had overdosed in the emergency room. I went down to see her and she was unconscious. I couldn't talk with her, but her roommate who had brought her in was waiting for me in another room uh, down the hall. So I talked to the roommate about what was going on in the patient's life and what she might have taken for the overdose and so forth. And then I went back to see the patient. She was still unconscious. So she was admitted to the intensive care unit overnight. And I went to see her the following morning after she awoke. When I went there the following morning, she was Barely awake, very, very groggy. Her eyes were closed. I introduced myself, and she said, through her closed eyes, "I know who you are. I remember you from last night." Wow. Well, that kind of surprised me because I, I thought she was out cold. So I said to her, "I thought you were unconscious when I came into your room to see you." And then she opened one eye and said to me, "Not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate." Well, that just that just blew me away. I couldn't imagine what that meant. The only way that could happen is if she had left her body and followed me down the hall. And as far as I could tell, I was my body. How can that happen? It was very unnerving. I had no explanation for that. But I was there to do a job. I had to work with her her confusion and her suicidal thoughts. I couldn't deal with my confusion at the time. <laughs> yes. So at the time, I just, I just tried to push it out of my mind. And then a few days later, trying to reflect on that, I thought, this couldn't possibly be somebody's playing a trick on me somehow, although I couldn't imagine how, because she had told me everything I had said with her roommate, what we were wearing, what we were sitting, and so forth. So it was, she had a lot of detail and no mistakes. So I just kind of pushed it out of my mind or tried to. to. I, I wouldn't dare tell my colleagues about this. They think I was crazy. And then about uh, four or five years later, I met Raymond Moody, who wrote a book called Life After Life in 1975, in which she gave us the term near-death experience, and describe what they were like. And when I read his book and talked with him, I realized what my patient was telling me about was not just one isolated incident. This is part of a very common phenomenon. And as a scientist, I couldn't understand this. And that meant you need to try to figure it out. It doesn't mean ignore it. It means go towards it. So I spent my uh, next 50 years trying to figure out what are these all about? And here I am still trying to understand it. (laughs)
0: That's actually a very remarkable approach. I mean, I say that with a ton of respect. Most scientists ignore most of what they don't. I wouldn't say understand, but what they wouldn't be able to measure.
1: Well, that's true. And and I did face that in some of the places I worked. Mm -hmm. They told me I was wasting my time doing this. I need to study things you can measure in a test tube. But actually, if you look at the history of science, if you study things that we already understand, you make tiny incremental advances. But if you study things we can't understand at all, that's where the big breakthroughs are made. Mm. So that's what I went for.
0: I think that's a remarkable statement, actually. So I am a scientist myself, and I'm a mathematician, and I love science. It really makes all of my, who I am. But I have to admit that the idea of filing and, you know, getting up the academia ladder and submitting papers and all of that would drive a lot of people to do that incremental Research, yes, yes. And I think the idea of the, the breakthroughs happen when you study something we really don't understand. So how do you study near-death experiences? I mean, at the end of the day, there is no way you can send a probe or a, or a camera with the person that is going through that experience. So how do you study that?
1: Exactly. Exactly. Well, you start by just collecting the stories. And you know, a lot of uh, my colleagues dismiss that saying, those are just anecdotes. Well, actually, all of science starts with anecdotes. You collect (laughs) stories, and then you look for patterns, and then you develop hypotheses and then test them. But you have to start with the anecdotes. If you dismiss all anecdotes, you have no science. So we started collecting anecdotes. And when we had enough, which means hundreds, we started looking at the patterns that recurred in the experiences. And... One of the issues that came up early on was that there were a number of people trying to study near-death experiences from different perspectives with different um, backgrounds, and some were interested in how we think, and they would look at changes in your thought processes, the thoughts speeding up, becoming clearer, and so forth. Others were interested in a more religious perspective. Is there an afterlife, and did you see God? And they asked about those things. And others were more interested in in how it changes people's lives. So they asked about, how has it changed you? And we weren't sure that we were all looking at the same phenomenon because we weren't asking the same questions. Interesting. So over a period of years, we looked at all the things that had been described as part of the near-death experience. And through a statistical analysis, we found a small group that seemed to be most reliable. And we developed a scale eventually with 16 items, which were the core near-death experience. And we published that in 1983. And that quickly became the gold standard of, of measurements for any death experience, and it's been used in thousands of studies in the past 40 years. Since we've learned a lot since then, it's, I don't think it's still the best measurement, but it's, it's what we have and what everyone uses. It's good for comparing among researchers and across large groups of experiences. It's not particularly helpful in dealing with one individual person, because one person may score very low on the scale and yet have a very profound life-changing experience. And you wouldn't tell them you didn't have an NDE. They obviously did. It's just not the type that scored on the scale.
0: So the scale was what 16 common features that most NDEs would have.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Would you share with us a few that
1: are very common? Several were changes in emotional state, a sense of overwhelming peace and well-being, a sense of joy. Some were changes in thought processes thoughts going much faster than usual. I know that. Having a life review, all your past memories coming back to you. Some were more or less paranormal, if I can use that word, phenomena, like a sense of leaving the body, being aware of things going on elsewhere as if you had extrasensory perception, occasionally seeing visions of future events. Hmm. And some were, for lack of a better word, otherworldly, encountering Beings that aren't physically present, either deceased loved ones or, or deities, coming to another realm that is not a physical realm, and eventually coming to a point of no return beyond which you can't keep going and still come back to life.
0: I was almost at that point, and then they, they brought me back, and I was like, what the F? Like, why are you bringing it? It was so yeah, joyful. Yeah. So it was really amazing for our audiences who may have not heard the term NDE before. A near-death experience is the experience that we get when we are clinically dead. Is that correct?
1: Well, it can happen when you are almost dead, when you are approaching death, or when you are actually pronounced dead, when your heart stops and your breathing stops. And those are people
0: that get to that point where their heart stops, their breathing yes. stops, and then they're resuscitated or they come back to life somehow. And then they tell us those
1: stories. Exactly. Yeah. And the interesting part is for scientists is that We know what happens to the brain when your heart stops. And within four or five seconds, the brain waves start to change. And within 15 or 20 seconds, it goes completely flat, meaning there's no electrical activity at all in the cortex that produces thoughts, supposedly. And yet people in that state say their thinking was faster and clearer than ever before. Their perceptions were clearer. They saw colors they'd never seen before. And yet this happens without brain function totally inexplicable to mainstream materialist scientists, as I was when I started out. Totally. I'll have to say even further, I mean, for
0: a patient to be able to see you with her roommate in another room and hear you without eyes, without ears, without brain function. Exactly. is a much bigger question than, because we often talk about the brain and the mind, and I'd love to come to that point with you. But even our sensors, our devices that we use to actually find sense of things are not even needed. You don't need eyes to see, it seems.
1: You don't need ears to hear. That's quite profound. It is. It is. And, you know, the near-death experience is not the only phenomenon that points in this direction. There's something called terminal lucidity in which people who have advanced dementia, like Alzheimer's disease who have not been able to communicate for years and don't recognize their families, suddenly become completely lucid in the hours or days before they die. And they can recognize family and carry on coherent conversations. And the family gets very excited thinking, oh, they're recovering, but they're not. They're just about to die. And this happens when their brain has deteriorated enough so that they're able to think again. Wow. There's no way the brain can regenerate itself in that condition. It's as if the brain was stopping you from being able to think and communicate. And once the brain is sufficiently shut down, you can do that. No, hold on. This needs a big
0: explanation here. I'm sorry to to interrupt you. So what what you're saying is when our brain deteriorates enough, you actually start to have supernatural abilities, sort of. So it's almost like the brain is a hindrance on the
1: path to actual clarity. Let me just clarify one point though. This is rare with dementia. Most people do not recover near death, but some do. And there have been some 80 reports in the medical literature about this. And the fact that there are any at all is totally unexplained. <laughs> it happens in yeah. uh, dementia, in brain tumors, in brain abscesses, a variety of um, brain conditions. There's also In the past decade, there have been studies of neuroimaging of people with psychedelic drug trips. And we used to think that these drugs work by stimulating the brain to hallucinate. But what these studies have found time after time is that the more spiritual and mystical experiences with psychedelic drugs are associated with a decrease in brain function. The electricity goes down and the connection between different parts of the brain goes down. So again, it's like, you need to get the brain out of the way to allow this higher consciousness to come through.
0: That is incredible. And so let's just dive deep into this. I'd love to come back and talk about the features of an NDE, but I think this is a good place to, to talk about what is the brain and what is the mind and what is the relationship between them. And I know this is something you cover deeply in your research.
1: Well, in everyday life, we act as if the mind is what the brain does. It seems like they go together all the time. When you get intoxicated, you don't think as clearly. When you get a concussion, when you get hit on the head or have a stroke, that affects your thinking. So it seems in everyday life as if the brain creates all of our thoughts. It's only under exceptional circumstances, like when the brain is shutting down, that that connection between brain and mind seems to separate. Now, that means the mind is something outside the brain and not created by the brain. And that raises all sorts of questions like, what is it? Where is it? But this is not a new idea. Hippocrates said this in Greece 2,000 years ago. He wrote that the brain is the messenger or interpreter of the mind. And it's been like a minority opinion in neuroscience for the last 2,000 years. Uh, People have talked about it as being a filter, being a reducing valve. They used whatever contemporary technology is available in their century to talk about the the (laughs) brain-mind. Yeah. Now we tend to look at things like um, cell phones, for example. If I'm talking to you on a cell phone and the battery in your cell phone dies, you can't hear me anymore. But I'm still talking. I'm still there. My voice is still there. Your cell phone receives the radio messages and converts them into sound so you can hear them. And in the same way, the brain takes the thoughts that are coming from the mind, filters them out, just lets in the ones that are relevant to you, and then displays them in electrical chemical signals the body can understand. In normal circumstances, you know, the brain evolved as part of the body to help us function in the physical world. So it lets in those thoughts relevant to survival, finding food, finding shelter, finding a mate, and all the other stuff about deceased loved ones and deities, that's not relevant to physical survival. So the brain filters those out, just as a radio receiver filters out all the frequencies that you're not listening to. You can't listen to all of them at once. It just lets in the ones that are relevant.
0: That's almost the opposite of what we are taught to believe. So we think that everything is generated in this three pound lump of meat, and then the mind or consciousness would perceive it through the brain. This basically says it's the opposite. It's everything is in consciousness, in the mind, and the brain picks the ones that are relevant for your physical life.
1: If you think about how the body evolves, this should not be surprising because our ears receive signals from outside of sound frequencies and filters out all those that are not relevant to us. Mm. Other animals hear frequencies we don't because they're not relevant to us. So the ears filter out irrelevant stimuli and the eyes only let in those wavelengths that are relevant to our survival. So why shouldn't the brain do the same thing? Filters out those things that are irrelevant to physical survival and just let in what we need. So you say, so NDEs would
0: sort of impair the brain to the point where that filtering is not there anymore. So you can have out-of-body experiences, you can talk to, you know, deceased loved ones and so on. Also, psychedelics would have similar effects because they would shut down a certain part of the brain. And so suddenly you see more vivid colors or you see a different view of reality that you've been shutting down before. Exactly. Now, this is really something because then... Is that something that we can tap into with our own training, with our own conscious on demand, if you will?
1: Well, various spiritual traditions have been trying to do this for centuries, and they usually do that by calming the brain, by various meditative techniques, or by stimulating to the point where it becomes overloaded, the whirling dervishes, uh, some...
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, as you said, this is the exact opposite of what we were trained to to believe, but what we were trained to believe also doesn't make sense. We have a physical brain that operates by electricity and chemistry, and we have no idea, no hint of a suggestion of an idea of how a physical chemical thing like that can create a non-physical thought. No one has ever come up with an idea of how the brain can produce a thought or a feeling or a perception. It's just a hypothesis that we accept, but there's no explanation for it.
0: That's amazing. And yet it is so widely accepted and nobody yes. debates it. That's, I think that's one of the bigger challenges of science, but let's come to, back to that in a minute. Let's build the texture of an NDE a little bit for our sure. listeners. So, so I'm particularly interested in out-of-body experiences, for example. You could say, and I'm being the devil's advocate here, You could say that this was hallucination. This was, you know, they saw things and they told a story. What proof do we have that this has any substance to it at all?
1: Well, there are times when people report seeing and hearing things when they were demonstrably unconscious that are totally accurate. Let me give you an example. One person that I know had a quadruple bypass surgery He was not only totally anesthetized, but he had his eyes taped shut so he wouldn't be able to dry his eyes out during the long operation. And during the procedure, he claims to have left his body and watched what was going on. And he saw his surgeon flapping his arms as if he was trying to fly. (laughs) Okay. Now, that's not something he would have guessed. Not something that I've ever seen a doctor do in my 50 years in medicine. You don't see this on television shows about doctors. (laughs) So I assumed when he told me this, that this was a hallucination from the anesthesia he was getting. Yeah. But with his permission, I talked to his surgeon and asked him about this. And the surgeon, to my surprise, said, well, yes, I do do that. He had developed this idiosyncratic habit, which no one else had ever used. He gets himself gowned and gloved and sterilized and then walks into the operating room after his assistants have started to open the body and start the procedure. And while he's supervising them, He doesn't want to risk touching anything that's not sterile, so he places his palms flat on his chest where he knows they won't touch anything, and then he points things out to them with his elbows so he won't touch anything with his fingers, Wow! and it looks like he's trying to fly. There was no way the patient could have known about this, and we have case after case about this where patients have seen things that were totally unexpected, and you couldn't have guessed that turned out to be accurate. Professor Jan Holden at the University of North Texas studied about 100 of these cases where people claimed to have left their bodies and reported things that could potentially be verifiable. And she found that 92% were completely accurate. 6%... Completely accurate. Completely. 6% had some errors in them, and only 1% were wrong. Wow. That is shocking, actually. So the question then is,
0: why do we ignore that? I mean, isn't that... Enough for us to say, this is very serious science. There is something that we need, you know, I mean, even from the medical profession point of view, these cases happen. I mean, I'm sure in a hospital, there are several cases of getting near death every day, right?
1: Yes, yes. I can tell you, there's been a tremendous change in the medical profession since I started doing this research. Back in the 1980s, we would present in medical conferences about near-death experiences and the audience would be politely silent and you know, there would be really no response. And now when we do that, it's rare that some members of the audience, doctors in the audience, don't stand up and say, let me tell you about my experience. So it's becoming increasingly accepted. And I think you know, back in the 1980s, very few doctors had ever heard about this. And they assumed that we were being gullible, being fooled by a couple of patients and now everyone knows about them. And more importantly, doctors know that these matter to patients. They're important for them to know about. I think all doctors accept that they happen. They don't all accept that they are not hallucinations, but those who are more knowledgeable are coming to that point of view. You know, there've been some recent studies of scientists about the mind-brain question, and they consistently find there's one study in Scotland, uh, one in Belgium, and one in Brazil, showing that about half of all physicians and other scientists think the mind and brain are not the same thing. So attitudes are changing. That's amazing.
0: Let's talk about the idea of meeting loved ones and a life review. So these are sort of in computer science, sort of connecting to other dimensions almost if you want. So this is basically, all right, I'm no longer part of this paradigm. I'm going to another paradigm. I'm reviewing sort of taking a backup of the story that passed so far and I'm now getting to know the guys that are on the other side. Yes. How does that work? I mean, is there an explanation for it?
1: No, there is not. You know, many people in India death experience report meeting deceased loved ones. And those are easy for skeptics to dismiss as just wishful thinking, expectation, You think you're dying, so of course you want to be... can prove it. Yes. So you just imagine this. But there are a number of cases now where people met deceased people who were not known to have died. Oh. So there's no possibility of expectation or wishful thinking here. Let me give you an example. This was, it occurred in the 1970s in South Africa, and a 25-year-old technical writer was hospitalized with severe pneumonia. And he was having repeated episodes of respiratory arrest where he could stop breathing. So he was in very bad shape. And he had a young nurse who was his favorite nurse who usually attended to him. And he would flirt with her when he was able to do that. And at one point, she said to him, You know, I'm going to be going away for the long weekend. Someone else will be taking care of you. So he said goodbye and wished her well. Shortly after she left, he had another respiratory arrest, had to be resuscitated. And during that time, he had a near death experience. And as he tells the story, He left his body and found himself in another realm, in a beautiful pastoral garden. And there, to his surprise, this nurse comes walking over to him. Oh! And in shock, he says, Anita, what are you doing here? And she says, this is where I am now, but you have to go back. And I want you to tell my parents that I'm very sorry that I wrecked the MGB. And then she turned and walked away. He then awoke back in his body after the recitation with a full memory of this experience and very excitedly told the first nurse he saw, who started to cry and left the room immediately. It turned out that this young girl had taken the weekend off because it was her 21st birthday and her parents had come in from the countryside to surprise her with a red MGB for her birthday. Oh, wow. She got very excited, jumped in the car, took off down a hill, lost control of the car and smashed into a telephone pole, dying instantly a few hours before his near-death experience. There's no way he could have known that she was dead, and certainly no way he could have known how she died, and yet he did. So how do we explain that? A decade ago, I published an article in a journal that covered about 50 of these cases throughout the centuries. Some go back to ancient Rome, and some are from contemporary cases, and the more recent ones have been corroborated by external evidence.
0: I mean, this is, I think, the only reasonable question to ask you now. I hope you don't mind this. So Anita was fine. Anita just came and spoke to him. What is that? Is that, I don't want to use the, you know, the spiritual terminology of soul or spirit. Is this Anita's consciousness? You know, it seems that Anita was still capable of loving her parents, capable of communicating, capable of saying you go back and asking for things, that's almost like Anita is still alive. Is that what those things indicate?
1: I think it's hard to come to any other conclusion other than that there's something about Anita that still exists after her body died. What it is, um, I'm not sure. As this patient described to me, he saw her, recognized her as the same person that he saw attending him in the bed. She looked just like the same person but I've heard other people say it was my grandmother. It didn't look like her, but I recognized the scent, the essence of her.
0: Her essence, I know that for sure. In my personal experience, you don't recognize the physical form, but you know intensely that this is your father or, you know. It's actually quite interesting, even in dreams sometimes, you don't recognize the physical image of someone, but you know that you were talking to your son or someone else, right?
1: Yes, yes. If you ask a near-death experiencer what happened in the NDE, they often start by saying, "Well, there aren't any words to describe it. You can't put it into language." And then we say, "Great, tell me all about it." You know, so we know we're forcing them, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're forcing them to distort the experience by telling us about it. So they use whatever metaphors are available to them to describe to us what happens, and those metaphors are usually cultural or religious. So you may see this entity, which you recognize as being the nurse who works with you, and you would impose on that entity her physical appearance, or at least so you can understand it, or so you can tell to me in a way that I can understand. Yeah. You know, many people will talk about uh, seeing a warm, loving being of light. And in Judeo-Christian cultures, they're likely to say, this was God. But many people will qualify that and say, no, I don't mean the God that I was taught about in church. I'm just using that word so you understand what I'm talking about. But it was much bigger than that. Yeah. And many will say, you know, you God, you can call it Buddha, you can call it Christ, you can call it Krishna. It doesn't matter. It's all there is. Wow. Now, uh,
0: I don't know how far we can go down that path, actually. But that idea of continuity, I think, is, is quite a, a strong message. Because one of the things I heard you talk about is in one of your speeches online, is the idea that an NDE will change the life of people that went through it and that the top change is a disappearance of the
1: fear of death. Exactly, yeah. The most common thing is a complete elimination of fear of death. Now, as a psychiatrist, when I heard that, I started worrying about, will that make people more suicidal? Because many people who are tired of this life Don't become suicidal because they're afraid of what will happen when they die. They're afraid of death. And if you eliminate that, won't that make them want to kill themselves? Interesting. So, of course, I did research on
0: this.
1: (laughs) I studied a group of patients who had been admitted to my hospital with a suicide attempt. And I studied those who had a near-death experience as a result of that attempt and those who didn't have an NDE. And what I found was those who had an NDE were much less suicidal after that. And when I asked them why, they said it was that their whole attitude towards life had changed. They still have the same problems they had before, but now they realize that they're more than just this bag of skin. They're part of something much greater than themselves. And in that context, those petty problems don't seem that important anymore. They're not things to run away from. They're things to grow from, to learn from. And they tend to see a meaning and purpose in life that they didn't see before.
0: You see, this reminds me very, very strongly of a spiritual teaching that I find fascinating from Sufism. One of the sort of dreams of a Sufi is to die before you die, if you know that terminology. Uh-huh. Yes. They think of it in a, in a spiritual form. It's to give up on all worldly things is to die before you die. But when you talk about it now, it, you know, it registers so strongly because an NDE is literally to die before you die. It's verbatim what that is. And it really alleviates you from that fear of death, from that assigning weight to things that really don't matter. I think it must also sort of probably reduces your, at least in my case, you know, your interest in status or material things. Oh, yes, or, definitely. Yeah, it's such an interesting change. And to just realize that life is not just this you end up changing as a person any other common changes you know
1: right yeah, Well, whether there are some corollaries to this when they find that as you said they, be, they sort of lose interest in worldly things in material possessions in power prestige fame competition and they become much more spiritual much more loving and compassionate loving and compassionate, i know and yeah. altruistic and um they become actually more invested in this life they say that if you're not afraid of dying then you're not afraid of living either. You're not afraid of taking chances, living more fully, because you're not afraid of losing this. Wow. You know what comes after is not, not something to be afraid of. So why not indulge all you can here? So people become much more, they find life much more meaningful and fulfilling and enjoyable than they did because they're not afraid of dying.
0: Ah, I wish we could tell people more about that. I mean, especially in tough times, like the times we're going through, yes, you know, yes. where, where a, a, big, a big part of the anxiety about the pandemic is what's going to happen to me tomorrow, what's going to happen to my loved ones. And, and, you know, the topic of death is in general a topic that's in most Western cultures highly avoided. It's like, let's not talk about this because we just don't want to talk about something we don't understand, if you want. And I think removing that changes everything. Removing the idea of, hey, death is just one more phase of this constant life. Would you say that this is
1: true? Yes. Oh, definitely, definitely. But the good news is that you don't have to have a near-death experience to understand these changes. There have been several studies now of students who are taught about near-death experiences in three different colleges in the United States where they had a semester-long course in near-death experiences, and they measured their attitudes and behaviors at the beginning of the course and at the end, and then a one-year follow-up. And they found that this course in a near-death experience makes people more compassionate and more altruistic. And this has been done with college students, with nursing students, and in one case, with high school students. Just being
0: aware of the concept, aware of the idea, allows you to sort of simulate dying before you die,
1: to know that this is... True, this is possible. It makes you think about what's meaningful in your life and what isn't, and what's going to remain when you leave here.
0: Would you say, Bruce, you started our conversation by saying you came from a very scientific family, your father was a chemist, and that nothing other than the
1: physical, you said, mattered.
0: Would you say that this changed for you?
1: But definitely, definitely. It's hard for me to explain all these things in a physical terms. I don't see how that can be done. So I accept that there is something beyond the physical. What it is, I don't know, because the people who tell me about it are speaking metaphorically. So I assume I can't take it literally, but I know there's something there and something that is not to be afraid of. Now, as a scientist, I can't say this is the truth. I can say the evidence points in that direction. I could be wrong. I could be misinterpreting the evidence. There can be more evidence coming up in 20 years to contradict this, but right now, it looks like the evidence is pointing towards the physical world not being the whole story. In fact, not even being the most important part of the story. Wow.
0: I think this would be a fascinating way to end our conversation. This truly is a conclusion that I think we should leave everyone in a bit of silence now to think about <laughs> deeply. I can't wait for your book after to come out. I'm pre-ordering it myself, and I hope we have a, another chance to talk about it after I've read it. I think this is a Fabulous contribution! Oh, thank you. Uh, to open people's eyes to to a spiritual experience that I have always longed to have. To die before you die. I think that's amazing.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Bruce, I thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for your knowledge. Thank you so much for putting your life behind this. I think it's a fascinating conversation and an eye-opening conclusion in so many ways.
1: Thank you, Mo. It's been a delight talking to you.
0: So there you have it. That's. I'm going to leave you in silence after this conversation to think about the reality of what did Bruce say? That this life within this bag of skin is what he used, is not the extent. As a matter of fact, it might not be the bigger part of life. I think I'll leave you to think about that. I enjoyed this conversation very much. I hope you enjoyed it too. I hope that you can find me on social media and tell me what you think. And tell me about other guests that you think would bring an interesting perspective to slow-mo. I'm Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram, Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn. i on Twitter and Mo.Gaudet.official on Facebook. Reach out, tell me what you think, and do help me spread the message on slow-mo. Rate it five stars if you haven't done that yet. And uh, yeah, I thank you for the alibi that you give me to speak to such amazing guests over and over and over. I love you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.